The most disrespected person in America is the black woman. The most unprotected person in America is the black woman. The most neglected person in America is the black woman. Malcolm X said that. But do you know what else he said? Welcome to Modern Faith, a podcast for the spiritual nourishment for today's millennial woman of color. I'm your host, Reverend Dr. Nichelle Guidry. Thanks for being here. Greetings and salutations, family. Um, this past week, uh, I don't know if it was the seventh or eighth week in quarantine for me here in Atlanta, but something of significance is that we celebrated the birthday of Brother Malcolm X. Brother Malcolm X, El Haj Malik El Shabazz. Our brother, our our father, our trailblazing, way-making, black radical, um, who would have been 95, I think, years old this week. Yep. 95 years old. On May 19th, 1925, God decided to smile on all of human creation and um, gave us uh, Malcolm Little, who became known as El Haj Malik El Shabazz, who became known more popularly as Malcolm X. And um, Malcolm X is a fascinating figure. And I think that it's really sad that in a lot of our public discourse, he's often placed in diametric opposal to Dr. King. When I was in divinity school, I read this book by the venerable James Cone called Martin and Malcolm in America. And what Dr. Cone beautifully illuminated in that text is that Martin and Malcolm may have at a certain point in their activism been um, opposed to one another. But over the course of time and over the course of all that transpired politically and culturally in the United States and abroad, both Martin and Malcolm um, sort of moved towards um, sharing a similar space of um, deep, deep, deep spirituality that was indeed the foundation and the root of um, their activism towards the end of their lives. Um, It's very interesting to me to think about Martin and Malcolm as having been um, given over (laughs) to the government in a similar way that Jesus was given over to Pontius Pilate, um, you know, at a point in their lives where they possessed and they walked in in utter clarity of call and purpose and mission. And, um, you know, as we celebrated 
um, Malcolm X's 95th birthday this week, I was recalling a part of his story that I've always been deeply fascinated by. And um, sadly, I haven't taken the time to sort of go down the rabbit hole of my curiosity of the chapter of his life where um, post-nation, he um, you know, traveled to Mecca for um, Hajj and really honed in on his identity as a Muslim man. Uh, not as a member of the nation of Islam, not as a disciple of Elijah Muhammad, perhaps not even as a race man, but as a man of Muslim faith, Muslim conviction, and Muslim identity. As I thought about this this week, I also remembered that our kindred in um, Islam are celebrating the culmination of Ramadan this weekend. It is Eid all over the world. And uh, I've been reading about sort of the uh, unconventional conditions of this year's um, Eid festivities um, due to the coronavirus and all of the social distancing that's taking place globally. And I've been thinking a little bit about um, this document. Uh, in April of 1964, um, once again, Malcolm X visited the um, holy city of Mecca. And he was there for Hajj, which is a, um, a solemn assembly for a prayer um, in Islam. And he wrote this letter. And if you've ever seen the Spike Lee joint um, with <laughs> fine-ass Denzel Washington playing Malcolm X, um, then you might remember this, um, this montage, this series of scenes of him um, praying and being in Mecca and um, as those scenes are happening, we hear the um, we hear this letter he writes um, from Mecca, and I've I've read this letter several times over the course of the years, and always been really intrigued about how this experience, this extremely spiritual and religious experience that he had in Mecca, caused him to perhaps for the first time in his life, reevaluate race relations amongst blacks and whites. And it's got me really thinking, you know, what would what would Brother Malcolm say to us right now? What would he say to us um, as we're living through this moment of racial um, disparities that cuts across our health realities, our economic realities, our political re realities? Um, would he be ashamed that we are perhaps in some ways better off than um, we were, than our forebears were when he was living and breathing and walking in this earth? Or would he be <laughs> so unbothered and unsurprised that as much as things change, they also stay the same? 
So as I'm thinking about him this week and I'm thinking about this this moment, this era that we're living in, I wanted to lift up um, this letter from Mecca that um, Brother Malcolm wrote in April of 1964. And um, I wonder what kind of light it can shed on our spirits and on our hearts in this particular era. So let me read the words of Brother Malcolm. He writes, Never have I witnessed such sincere hospitality and overwhelming spirit of true brotherhood as is practiced by people of all colors and races here in this ancient holy land, the home of Abraham, Muhammad, and all the other prophets of the holy scriptures. For the past week, I have been utterly speechless and spellbound by the graciousness I see displayed all around me by people of all colors. I have been blessed to visit the holy city of Mecca. I have made my seven circuits around the Kaaba, led by a young mutawaf named Muhammad. I drank water from the well of the Zamzam. I ran seven times back and forth between the hills of Mount Al-Safa and Al-Mahra. I have prayed in the ancient city of Mina, and I have prayed on Mount Arafat. There were tens of thousands of pilgrims from all over the world. They were of all colors, from blue-eyed blondes to black-skinned Africans. But we were all participating in the same ritual, displaying a spirit of unity and brotherhood that my experiences in America had led me to believe never could exist between the white and the non-white. America needs to understand Islam because this is the one true religion that erases from its society the race problem. Throughout my travels in the Muslim world, I have met, talked to, and even eaten with people who in America would have been considered white. But the white attitude was removed from their minds by the religion of Islam. I have never before seen sincere and true brotherhood practiced by all colors together, irrespective of their color. You may be shocked by these words coming from me. But on this pilgrimage, what I have seen and experienced has forced me to rearrange much of my thought patterns previously held and to toss aside some of my previous conclusions. This was not too difficult for me. Despite my firm convictions, I have always been a man who tries to face facts and to accept the reality of life as new experience and new knowledge unfolds it. I have always kept an open mind which is necessary to the flexibility that must go hand in hand with every form of intelligent search for truth. During the past 11 days here in the Muslim world, I have eaten from the same plate, drunk from the same glass, and slept in the same bed or on the same rug while, while praying to the same God with fellow Muslims who I, whose eyes were the bluest of blue, whose hair was the blondest of blonde, and whose skin was the whitest of white. And in the words and in the actions and the deeds of the white Muslims, I felt the same sincerity that I felt among the black African Muslims of Nigeria, Sudan, and Ghana. 
We were truly all the same, brothers, because their belief in one God had removed the white from their minds, the white from their behavior, and the white from their attitude. I could see from this that perhaps if white Americans could accept the oneness of God, then perhaps too they could accept in reality the oneness of man and cease to measure and hinder and harm others in terms of their differences in color. With racism plaguing America like an incurable cancer, the so-called Christian white American heart should be more receptive to a proven solution to such a destructive problem. Perhaps it could be in time to save America from imminent disaster, the same destruction brought upon Germany by racism that eventually destroyed the Germans themselves. Each hour here in the Holy Land, enables me to have a greater spiritual insight into what is happening in America between black and white. The American Negro can never be blamed for his racial animosities. He is only reacting to 400 years of the conscious racism of the American whites. But as racism leads America up the suicide path, I do believe from the experiences that I have had with them that the whites of the younger generation in the colleges and universities will see the handwriting on the walls and many of them will turn to the spiritual path of truth. The only way left to America to ward off the disaster that racism inevitably must lead to. Never have I been so highly honored. Never have I been made to feel more humble and unworthy. Who would believe the blessings that have been heaped upon an American Negro? A few nights ago, a man who would be called in America a white man, a United Nations diplomat, an ambassador, a companion of kings, gave me his hotel suite, his bed. Never would I have even thought of dreaming that I would have ever been a recipient of such honors, honors that in America would be bestowed upon a king, not a Negro. All praise is due to Allah, the Lord of all the worlds. Sincerely, El Haj Malik El Shabazz, Malcolm X. So as I'm reading, um, I have just a couple of things that I want to sort of speak back to or to lift up. And the first one is just how amazed the brother was at the um, <laughs> the experience, but also the very possibility of a kind white person. He's very clear that because of his experience in the United States throughout his life, this was not um, within his um, realm or sphere of possibility to encounter white people who had sincere hearts and who have fully, in some ways, divested of uh, the, well, in his words, the attitude of whiteness, right? Um, the mentality of whiteness. And I, I um, will put the link to this letter online because I think that 
It's very, very important in this text to read the words that he has italicized. Um, he is very, very, very uh, intentional in his writing, as I believe he was in his speaking about where he places his emphasis. And he's very clear here that, um, at least as, as, uh, suggested by his emphasis in the text, he's very clear there here that his problem was not necessarily with white people. It was with the way that white people moved and operated in the world. He, the, 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 the minds of white people, the behavior of white people, the attitude of white people. These are words that he has italicized in this letter. And, um, it's very, oh gosh, it's just so powerful to read this and to, to look at it because he's, he's so, um, it's not just that the um, spirituality of the experience has has moved him. It's it's how the spirituality has has impacted the sociology of the experience. He's so clear in this text that he does not believe that Christianity, at least not the way that it is um, it is performed and the way that it functions in the United States is possible of leveling the ground the way that Islam is. In fact, you know, this is one of the great gifts of black liberation theology over time is that theologian after theologian after theologian, whether they're trained or whether they are, you know, the the deacon with the middle school, high school education in your black church on the corner are very clear that Christianity has actually supported the racial hierarchies and the segregation and the white supremacy. White folks, um, Christianity in the hands of white folks has served as a means of absolute destruction. But here in this text, we see... Um, that if there was a faith system, a religious tradition that could redeem the soul of white folks primarily, but in so doing also redeem the soul of humanity, he's very clear. This form of Islam, he doesn't make any direct commentary here on how the form of Islam that he practiced and that he witnessed in the holy city of Mecca compares to the nation of Islam. Because at this point, I believe he's already parted ways from the nation. And, you know, his relationship with Elijah Muhammad has already become extremely torrential. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a scary situation between Brother Malcolm and the nation of Islam at this point. So, I, I I need to go down this rabbit hole of curiosity about where he stood ideologically um, with the nation um, and how that fared with how he stood with Islam, you know, as he witnessed it and participated in it in this clearly life-changing experience. Um. I love this line here where he says, each hour here in the Holy Land enables me to have greater spiritual insights into what is happening in America between black and white. I 
I really appreciate the articulation of a faith, a religion even, that brings clarity uh, to a moral problem, to a social ill, to a transgression of the human heart. This was not escapist religion. This was not religion that projects a reality that is far more sanitized than it really is. This was a religion that emboldened Malcolm X to actually approach his work of race work and activism and ultimately martyrdom, right? Um, With a clear sense of divine calling and divine insight. He's also very clear here um, that any pursuit of knowledge, whether it's a spiritual awakening or the broadening of the mind through whatever form of education, you know, it has to go hand in hand with a flexibility. We have to be open to what we don't know and what and how what we don't know can change us and how it can change the paths of our lives. So you think you know what you know? It has been my experience that the more I know, the more I realize there's so much that I don't know. And I think that that is the beginning of what Malcolm X is articulating here. He says it right here. Despite my firm convictions, I have always been a man who tries to face facts and to accept the reality of life as new experience and new knowledge unfolds it. I have always kept an open mind which is necessary to the flexibility that must go hand in hand with every form of intelligent search for truth. Howard Thurman said it this way, um, with head and heart. It's part of the reason why I feel like I've been so attracted to, um, to the academy why I'm doing ministry in an academic setting um, and why I have such an appreciation for um, not just the life of the mind, but for people who fully engage in that life. Um, I don't know that I grew up in a tradition that left our minds at the door when we entered into the sanctuary. But I do know that I have witnessed some destructive religion. And I do know that I've witnessed religion that is destructive in the way that it is nonsensical, in the way that it professes a love for God, but also professes and indeed enacts a disdain for self and for other. You know, so um, I believe that even as he was um, encountering this 
or engaging in this deeply transformative experience and spiritual encounter in Mecca, what he was also happening to him was a broadening of his mind. And what he's expressing is that as the mind is broadened, we've got to be willing in some sense to let go of what we thought we knew in order to be able to receive the revelation that is at hand. So these are just some initial thoughts because like I said, I would love the opportunity to go deeper here. And if you are someone who has um, done some work on Malcolm X, particularly post-nation Malcolm X, um, it's his spirituality post-nation. I'd love to have a conversation. I'd love to get some resources, but um, I've always marveled at this letter. I've always marveled at these words. And just speaking artistically, I think that that montage in Mecca of uh, Malcolm X, uh, Denzel Washington, praying and eating and conversing with all manner of races of of his Muslim brothers, um, and him also being stalked by, I believe, the CIA um, while he was in Mecca, and he knew it. Artistically, that montage sort of laden with this this the vernacular of this this letter has always stuck with me. It's always stuck with me um, because there's just so many different narratives (laughs) happening at one time. But I do think that as a spiritual woman, as a seeker, as a theologian, I've always been attracted to how his spiritual experience and expression was sort of at the center. And um, yeah, it just kind of reminds me of a little bit. I'm not trying to liken myself to Malcolm X, but it it, it does um, give me a, a vestige of what it can look like and what it will mean when the story of my life is told and my faith is at the center of everything that I tried to accomplish and everything I tried to be. So... So all of that being said, um, we're going into a holiday weekend. I hope that you all have some time to rest. I hope that you all have some time to recalibrate. I hope that you all have some time to spend with your loved ones, your family, um, your friends, even if it is on Zoom or house party or FaceTime or whatever virtual means you're using to stay connected right now because our connections are perhaps more important now than they've ever been. So I'm wishing you all a fantastic holiday weekend and talk soon. We've come to the end of this episode of Modern Faith. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you could, please take just a second to rate and subscribe to Modern Faith on all of your preferred podcasting platforms. And stay connected with us on Instagram and Twitter at Modern Faith Podcast. Thanks again. And until next time, keep the faith.